very difficult, if not impossible, to tell who is an American player and who is a European player. They're a bit like cars and a bit like mobile phones. They're all the same and we're resorting to storytelling to tell the difference. And, and the captain is the key storytelling device. This episode of the Golf.com podcast is all about Ryder Cup captains. Do they matter? I'm your host, Sean Zock. I'm going to talk with journalist and author Richard Gillis, who set out to answer that exact question. Do Ryder Cup captains actually matter? And if they do, how much do they matter? Where do they help and where can they hurt their team's chances? Why do we give them so much blame when they lose? After all, they are not swinging a golf club the entire week. Gillis recently wrote the book, The Captain Myth, How the Ryder Cup is Won. It published here in the United States this week, just in time for Davis Love to make his first three captain's picks. I read the book yesterday. It is very captivating, flows really deep through Ryder Cup history. It's fascinating even for the average golf fan, but it's really perfect for the golf nut. Richard, thank you for joining me. How is life over there in Europe? It's uh, it's very good, actually. Surprisingly good weather. For uh, I'm in Britain at the moment, so... Um... I'll make the most of it. Yeah, definitely. Now, a, a good friend of mine told me about the book just days after I noticed a copy of it in our office. It originally caught my eye because, personally, I've been analyzing Captain's Picks for about a month now, shamefully. My first super general question is, why did you write the book, and how were you inspired to do so? Um, so the the thrust of the book came from, um, I'm a, I'm a Essentially, I'm a business writer who writes about sport. That's my sort of little area of the world. And I interview a lot of people who are selling books about leadership. And it's normally people who are either running companies or being successful in sport. Um, and you sort of think, well, actually, it's, they're offering a simple, beguilingly simple solution to what is a, is a very complex problem. And, and when you get to the Ryder Cup, it just seemed like the perfect um, vehicle to explore some of those themes. So one of the, you know, the, the points of the book is is to say, well, look, how are we talking about this? How are we looking? Um, this? Why are we elevating the captain um, to the degree that that we are? And it's it's very difficult to tell the story of sport and the Ryder Cup without using the captain as the device. And that the the what's happening um, is that. So we're creating a sort of cult around leadership. Now that's a storytelling device. It's not much to do with um, the role. And I think we do overrate the role of leadership and by definition underplay the other elements um, that are taking place within the game, within the Ryder Cup, about the players, the skill, and also the enormous role that luck plays um, in sport. And luck is not a great story. No, um, no, you know, it it's one of those, it's a disappointing story. So if you write a book um, or a film screenplay and it turns on coincidence and luck, then it will get chucked back at you because it just, it, that's an unsatisfactory um, uh, reason for anything to happen. So that's that, you know, so there are lots of elements there. And really, I just thought, well, actually, there's something interesting here. I don't believe people, I never trust people with, with easy solutions to, to complex um, issues. <laughs> And and so just wanted to sort of put something out there. It was a bit of an antidote to that, you know, guy, I've won something and therefore I can teach you how to be a winner, that sort of thing. I just thought, well, I, I, I don't believe that. And I think that I think we need to have a more balanced conversation about yeah. it. Yeah, we had a conversation in the office yesterday uh, kind of about that, basically 
how how complex the Ryder Cup captaincy really is and how it gets simplified down into um, just storylines that, that make sense for the media and make sense for the fans. That's kind of how it has been. Now, I'm curious, when you say we, do you mean both Americans and Europeans? Do you, did you think that captains are basically treated the same way regardless of which team they're represented? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that... Um... We tell different stories. If you look at the, I mean, what's interesting about the the, the Ryder Cup, um, I mean, over here, Tony Jacklin was the person that sort of in the 80s and the job changed and he elevated the role of the captain um, and it needed elevating. It needed someone to come in and be a figurehead and, and he, you know, the profile of the sport was rising. You needed someone to articulate that and he did it brilliantly. Um, and... <laughs> One of the flip sides of that is that he was so good at it that he, you know, he made the, the captain then became the sort of um, all powerful role. Now, and Jacklin was very clever. When you look back, you know, he was the first captain really people remember over here because he was he was visibly out there being a captain. He was on, you know, he was on a talking into a walkie talkies on the course, and you know, and he was he's driving around in a in a buggy and you know with clipboards and and talking to lieutenants and making sort of obviously making decisions before our very eyes. You know, so it was it's a uh, and that builds the whole uh, persona. And since again the eighties, you had um, a, a, you know Europe have been dominant. And one of the, you know, the, what happens is that over a period of time, the, the, the myths that we build around the captain, we also build other myths, other explanations for European success, American defeat. If you go back to 27 and Walter Hagen and Ted Ray, the first two captains, America been, you know, were dominant until the mid 80s. And we over here created a series of stories that explained those results. And, and they included, America. You know, of course, America were going to win because they've got lots of money. It's, it's <laughs> weather. Um, they, they can play all year round. The greens are, you know, improve their putting. And there's all sorts. Of, and, the, and the college system produced a sort of uh, conveyor belt of talent. It was a factory of talent. So all of those things, okay, well, of course, America were, were dominant. And then Europe started winning, mm -hmm. and those things have now turned around. And so money is a reason often cited that America isn't winning the Ryder Cup because they're all rich and they're too complacent and there's too much money on the PGA Tour. They're, they don't have to fight to win. Yeah. They're, they're, everything's handed on a plate. They're, they're, the courses are too perfect, and therefore they don't have to grow up with shot making skills against the sort of Europeans who are out there. Again, if you listen to people too long, you hear, you know, European players out there fighting the wind on links courses on a weekly basis, you know, and yeah. it's just, so we're, we're all telling stories to try and explain these results. And, and the, you know, this peculiar two sided um, story of the Ryder Cup's history, I think lends itself to that. And again, we're, again, we're falling back on simple stories to explain things that are actually quite complicated. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, in the book, uh, I like how you talked about luck earlier. Uh, you, be you begin by explaining to the reader the fine line between winning and losing, between triumph and failure. To do so, you use the example of Phil Mickelson against Justin Rose in their Sunday singles match at the 2012 Ryder Cup in Medina. Why did you choose that match as uh, your prime example to lead off the book? It was, it was a sort of... Um, it was just such a fantastic match, a fantastic moment, and it just exemplified, I think, the role that you know. The, the point I was making is that 
they're tiny margins quite often between winning and losing. And, you know, although we're talking now about Europe going in for, you know, for the fourth win on the trot, um, actually, you know, Medina and Celtic Manor is one putt has decided the difference. And so it'd be a very different story if, if you know, and, and luck plays an enormous role. Justin Rose hold a putt, brilliant putt. And of course, it's talent and it's nerve and expertise. But he, his stats show that he would hold 1% of those a year you know, from that length of, and that type of putt. So, you know, and of course, so that is luck. And so it's it sort of, and if that hadn't have happened, we would be telling different stories. Alaphabal, um, who I, you know, absolutely love as a golfer and as a person, um, he was going to get the bad captain story applied to him, you know, and we were, we were then already making up reasons why he would be a bad captain. Davis Love's team appeared to be sort of countering all of the... Um, cliches they america seem very bonded they seem there seemed to be team spirit there in those first two days uh which we're you know we're led to believe that europe has the superior team spirit that didn't appear to be the case for two days in medina now the story turned and it turned on lots of different things but justin rose's putt just was the single memory that i took away thinking actually well that was that needs explaining that's 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 the moment where um if you were telling this story in a film, that's when it would change and we would then start to sort of alter. And so we then get two different stories. We have a lap about as the good captain and Davis Love then gets a kicking the um, as the losing captain always yeah. does. The good captain and the bad captain each gets its own uh, chapter early on in the book. Uh, you also discuss the halo effect that is happening uh, when we, which basically means, you know, we, we perceive a team that wins to have had the correct strategy, to have done a bunch of things correct behind the scenes, and its, it's pieces are working together correctly. And then a team that loses, uh, conversely, has the wrong strategy and have done something wrong along the way. And uh, I guess something, something beyond just making more putts that matter. Why do you think we, as a populace, continually perceive success and failure that way? Um. I mean, the, the, the halo effect is quite a well-known sort of psychological uh, game that we, we that we play. And there's a great book called The Halo Effect, actually, Philip um, Rosenweig, which is which he's talking about in a business context. Um, and when you apply it to the Ryder Cup, it becomes, you know, it, it explains quite a lot because, as you say, we assume that winning explains things, and actually, winning can be very misleading. So, um, one of the and one of the things we do is, again, we, we attribute, we make, a, again, what social scientists call a, a, a fundamental attribution error. Essentially, we, we attribute success to the decisions that were made, and, and, in, and we do it wrong, um, and we get it wrong a lot of the time. Now, what that means from a Ryder Cup perspective is, okay, the, the, look at the captain's decisions, and the, you know, you've, we've got the wild card conversation at the moment, you've got the setup of the course, you've got... Um, the pairings and the singles lineup. Those are, you know, those are essentially the sort of areas of decision making that, that that we're talking about. And then we lay on top of that motivational stuff, you know, in terms of, of trying to, uh, you know, the, the great Saturday night team talks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we've got these decisions, and if you win, there is an assumption that those were the right decisions. Yeah. Um, what's if we now look at what's happening? So America. Having lost again twice by one putt, but but um, have then come together with a task force. Now, <laughs> I think this is fascinating. This task force because oh, yeah. actually, what they're doing is saying, okay, well, there is a um, 
there's something we, wrong. We, there is something we're, we're not doing. There is a process error that we're, we're, we're making and we are going to sort it out. If you then flip, it, flip over to the European side, if you come at the end, when I was in the press conference at the end, you know, the famous Mickelson yep. press conference, but the McGinley one was also interesting where um, Lee Westwood and Rory McIlroy both said that McGinley's approach was a, could be a blueprint for the future captain, <laughs> um, a, you know, a template. So, and this is what America is trying to find. It's trying to find a template for success. And there isn't one. It's, no. a, it's a sort of mirage. And we don't know whether McGinley's captaincy led to success. You know, we, 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 we've made all sorts of assumptions, um, but there's just no evidence to support that. So Darren Clark has a problem in that, okay, well, what do you copy? Yeah. What, what is it that, you know, what does strategy mean in that sense? Because if you don't know what, what, what went right, um, you're guessing. And you can see that from some of his decisions already, Clark is sort of saying, okay, well, if I, it's all about risk management to an extent. If I copy McGinley, I'm taking less of a risk. So he's, you know, he's taking five vice captains again, which is a, which is a McGinley innovation. Um, he's got Alex Ferguson in, Man United manager, to do a sort of pep yeah. talk. Um, all of which came from this playbook, this template that, that McGinley um, was working to. So there is sort of paradoxically less room to manoeuvre um, for a winning captain, for the captain who is, you know, um, of the tide that's, that's going in um, three up. America can do what they like, mm -hmm. you know, and there's, there's a lot of, Mickelson was talking through the captain, you know, a lot of the, 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 his criticisms were based on the, the last winning American captain, the last good captain that America have had, which is Azinger in 2008. He won. He won with a brilliant story, the pods and the, you yeah. know, all of, all of that. Now, Mickelson, essential, his message was, we've got to go back to our last good captain myth. And so that's what the task force essentially is doing. And I think the task force is, is, a, is a fantastic, I think we'll look back on the task force. If, if Davis Love wins, uh, Pete Bavacua and the PGA of America and Love and Mickelson will be, you know, they'll be uh, golden because that, that they'll, and the task force will get enormous amounts of credit. Whether it's right or wrong, is a, is a separate issue. Yeah, I, I personally would love to be a fly on the wall of the task force meeting just to see what they're talking about. You know, they, they did come up with the point strategy or the, the point qualifying system and why that matters. And it's, it's a bit arbitrary uh, choosing certain events over others, in my opinion. But uh, that's an aside for now. I mean, Love said it himself after the loss at Medina. Going into the Sunday singles, he's up 10 to 6. And he said that the story would be either the team wins or the captain blows it, which is a bit wildly unfair uh, because the captain's not swinging golf clubs. Um, there's no timeouts during a Ryder Cup. You can't, uh, like in other sports, you can't call timeout and pull your team together in the ninth, ninth tee box and tell them what to do. I just, I, I do find it interesting, and, uh, as well as what you pointed out, you know, Paul Azinger, as you said, the pod system in 2008. He gets, you know, he, he writes a book on it. He, he gets lauded as the greatest captain. He, he doesn't have a, a second go-round or hasn't had a second go-round yet. We really only know the success. Um, we kind of, we, we don't attribute it to, to J.B. Holmes, who was on that team, to Anthony Kim, to Boo Weekly. We attribute it to, to Paul Azinger and this Navy SEALs-like approach. Uh, I do find that very, very fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, he's, I think, 
there's a few things going on there. And I think that um, it's often said that Azinger, you know, why didn't Azinger go again in 2010? And they certainly asked to do it or he wanted to do it. Um, and I think probably the smartest thing would be to not do it because he only had, you know, he could only lose from then on. Um, but it's a bit similar to Jacqueline. So Jacqueline in the 80s had a bloody good team. You know, he had Ballesteros, Faldo, Langer at their peak, Alapabal, Woosnam, brilliant major winner, winning players. First time Europe had had a group of players to that, you know, of that quality. And, you know, as Curtis Strange said to me for the book, you know, right time, right place, you know, and, and there's a lot to that. And, and likewise, they couldn't believe how long those blokes played, you know, Faldo and Ballesteros, you know, how, how they were good for two decades. So it was... It was pretty tough, and they were they were, they were a really good good team. Likewise, you know the sides that won in the mid two thousands. You've got some good, really really good players on the European side. So, you know, I, I agree that that I mean the thing with Azinger and his pods is actually what he was doing was putting was doing exactly what I'm sort of advocating in the book is that he's he's devolving a lot of the responsibility to the players. Yeah. Um, so actually, taking off his shoulders. You know, I, I think he was a what a lot of what he did there there was there was you know there's some really good stuff in it I, it was ladled with you know the seal story which was again a lovely piece of <laughs> drama but you know that's that's you know i'm not saying for a minute that leadership doesn't exist and leadership isn't one of the uh, the elements of this it just means all i'm saying is that the leadership doesn't actually necessarily have to come from the bloke who's sitting at the top and one of the mistakes that we make you know in business and in sport is that we um buy I'd say creating a cult of the person at the top. We're assuming that they have a monopoly on good ideas and and you know uh, creativity and and decisions, and and they don't. And actually, good organisations leaders are are just you know reflecting or or bringing good ideas from the team. From the team. And I think yeah. we just need to you know, and that's but it, it's not such a sexy story. That's no. why we're not doing it. No, no. One thing I found interesting about Davis Love's recent press conference is he's he's kind of. Uh, making references to past very successful American coaches in other sports. He's talking about Dean Smith, uh, the great North Carolina basketball coach. And Davis Love wants to make this as not really a Ryder Cup captain, but more like a Ryder Cup coach. And I, I think that the captaincy doesn't exactly allow for that all the time. I do find that very interesting. Now, so if you say that the Ryder Cup captain, it's certainly in leadership they provide, it matters in some areas and it gets blown out uh, beyond proportion in other areas. Let's talk about where we think it does matter. Uh, one important point you make in the book is that the underdog storyline is a bit flawed, but also important. Why would you say that it's, fl- I think I understand why it would be flawed, the fact that maybe the players are, are not that much better than their opponents. But why is the underdog storyline important? There is a release of pressure, I guess, that, that every team that's going into the Ryder Cup, um, if you're, you're any sporting event, if you're the underdog, you're not expect- their expectations are lower and therefore um, you can only exceed them. Whereas if you're going in expected to win, that brings its own pressure. Now, um, Europe... Uh, sorry, America finds it very difficult to be the underdog in anything. Yeah. You know, so it's it's really hard in, in any sport for them to go in and say, you know, we're, we're okay, we've got a puncher's chance, but we're going to get whipped, you know. And, and they just, it's really very difficult for lots of different reasons for anyone to really genuinely believe that. And that's not a naturally, um, that's not America's position. 
in sport or beyond sport. You know, American is is the leading, you know, the, the world's leading country, et cetera, et cetera, the yeah. sort of exceptionalism argument. So even in golf, it's very difficult for them to go in and say that we're, you know, we're on a hiding here to nothing here. So um, and Jacqueline was was very clever. And it's, it's again, one of his, one of his sort of uh, master strokes was to, to play up the sort of status differences between um, America and, and European players. And they were, you know, to the extent they were real at that point. He does, he does ladle it on, you know, like he makes out that, you know, being a European professional golfer in the, in the sort of 70s and 80s was like a sort of, you know, um, torture chamber. But it was like a, there was definitely differences. There was more money, and, you know, and, and he used the, the, the ob- obsessed with cashmere. <laughs> yeah. So he put the team in, or, you know, flew them over on Concord and dressed them in cashmere um, because he wanted, as he said, to level off the sort of status between the two, um, whilst also making it very clear that we were still the underdog. So, you know, it was, it, it's, it's some nice psychological games going on. Now, whether or not in the team room they believe that is another question. But certainly from a public relations perspective, that's always been Europe's um, sort of modus operandi. And certainly Clark is still doing it. I mean, there's a lot, you know, there is a race. McGinley was, was very big on this, you know, we're Europe, we're not, we're, we're not expected to win. Um, I think they're probably telling the players something different in the in the team room, but uh, yeah, it's got you know that's that that dynamic is always at play when you've got America, and it's America is very hard to to do it any other way. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see it changing anytime soon. The uh, I mean when you just, when you just look at the amount of what golf appreciates as talent, I think uh, in in the world golf rankings would would say that hey we've got twelve better ranked golfers than the European team will have and. And I, I imagine Davis Love is keen to not wanting to be claimed as the favorite. I think he said that in his press conference that the European team will be good and they want to be the underdogs, but we don't want them to be the underdogs. Uh, another thing that you talk about in the book is momentum. Uh, and now this has little to do with the run-up to the Ryder Cup and more to do with the three days of actual matches. Momentum is one of the words that broadcasters that broadcast the event will use throughout its entirety. And, and, and you'd argue that uh, the importance of momentum is really not that high. Am I right there? Um, I, I love this topic because it really does annoy people when uh, you, you sort of talk about it and, and players and captains get a bit irritated, actually, if you, if you sort of say, well, it, you know, this, is, this is, doesn't exist. Momentum exists, it's a, you know, in its... We're borrowing words here from science and engineering. Momentum exists in the real world. It's an unstoppable force. Once you, you know, it's it's. it's but in in golf, in in Ryder Cup, these are separate events. They don't. They're not joined together in a in a you know in a way that other sports are. So this is psychological um, momentum that we're talking about here. And one of the things I've never quite understood. So, you know, when you go back to 99 and Brookline, that was when we first started talking really about momentum in any in any sense, because it was obviously incredibly dramatic. And, you know, the, the mirror of Medina, really, and it was for a four shot swing on the last day. And there was a great deal of talk about Mark James's, his, you know, lineup. And they won the first, um, I think it was the first six uh, matches in America and it turned it that way and then since then and you had players talking about this force they felt this force um, the crowd the the energy and the player they was just almost they're talking like they're almost defenseless in this in this sort of uh, in the face of this this thing 
Um, and we talked to Azinger, you know, he says it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. <laughs> you know, and it's like it's, a, it's become part of the sort of folklore of, um, of Ryder Cup golf. And as you say, it's, it's there in sports journalism. It's, it, it sort of is a narrative device that adds drama to other uh, otherwise unrelated stories. So if you, you know, and you go into the ad break and someone will say, you know, the momentum is with America, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it just sort of, and it, it's exciting, you know, but when you, when you look at it, and I go into quite a bit of detail in the book on this, but there is, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's, a, it's a psychological game. Now, what I don't understand about it, if I'm a captain, is why I put so much um, emphasis on momentum, getting momentum, building it up in the players' minds, because actually when it's against you, you you've got to not believe in momentum. Yeah. You know, so if you believe in momentum and you're on, you know, it's coming straight at you, then that's a bad thing, surely. So surely if I'm a captain, I would say, well, this thing doesn't exist. Don't don't believe the hype and just play your natural game. Play every shot is, is, is different. The other thing, why does, you know, it's momentum is an unstoppable force. So why does it stop? You know, why does they have six, um, six wins and then the European, uh, I think it was Harrington won. And you sort of think, well, if it was such a, you know, unstoppable force, then surely he would just get knocked over in the face of it. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but it's a, it's a sort of, again, it's something that we borrowed. I think we're, we're, one that I was thinking about this the other day, that actually it might be to do with our sort of obsession with sports science, that we keep borrowing these words and applying yeah. them to sport. And, and, and sport is, is probably more art than science, although the sports scientists would, would argue that. <laughs> uh, now, in, in the book, uh, you go so in-depth it, it's remarkable to the extent, as you said earlier, of explaining the importance of Kashmir to Tony Jacklin's success, uh, mm. captain, captaining the European team to the point of Kashmir. Did you ever feel that like that you were possibly going way too deep into the captaincy? <laughs> well, I'm only, I'm only following what they did. You know, I'm not making this up. I just, it, you know, Jacklin is a, is a, is a really interesting figure because he's over here. I don't, it's hard for you over there to, to, to get a feel for, particularly in Britain, yeah. um, Jacqueline's role because he was a he was a superstar. He was our first modern golfing superstar, and you know he was he was obviously won the, the Open, then the U.S. Open that Hazel time, and you know unheard of, fantastic. Um, and but he's got an interesting persona. So he's not you know from uh, a well-off family. He's worked fairly humble beginnings, north of England. And that has stayed with him. If you read his books and you talk to him, which as I did, that there is something there that's driving him, and that's that's made him the the sort of player he was. I think that's real. Um, he's fighting the whole time. He's fighting. You know, uh, there was he was given a right load of old abuse when he first got on the PGA Tour in the in the sixties um, by some of the old pro, pros who just resented his success and resented foreigners coming over blah 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 he was you know he was fighting with mark mccormack and img he was fighting the tax man he was fighting everything so um, and one of the things he was he was he instilled it was a sort of real them and us mentality within the mm-hmm. uh european team and he and and it personified by balasteros so he saw balasteros as a kindred spirit and balasteros had similar battles with dean beeman and the american tour and IMG and various other, you know, the usual um, suspects, and they. Jacqueline's use of Kashmir was was purely as a symbol of to to say that we're as good as they are now, and mm-hmm. um, he was 
he's a, he's a, he's a sort of um, it it <laughs> it was sort of it was Kashmir and Concord, and Concord again was was a central part of the story of Jacqueline's sort of revolution, and it was all to do with leveling the the, the status. But Kashmir is, is is you know he was he was almost obsessed with it. He mentions it all every time yeah. <laughs> every time you talk to him. He talks about Kashmir. It's unbelievable. And and but it's one of those stories that that everyone else doesn't now talk. So he talked to people at the European tour. He talked to players, you know, captains, subsequent captains, and they all mention, you know, oh, Jack Clean, he gave us Kashmir. As though, <laughs> as though, you know, professional golfers in the 80s couldn't afford it. They were millionaires. You know, they could buy Kashmir. Kashmir wasn't that, you know, it's just the symbol of it. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was such a... Such a big thing, but anyway, I think it's quite funny. Yeah, you can certainly argue too, uh, especially after reading your book, just that Tony Jacklin and, and Seve are without a doubt two of the most pivotal, played two of the most pivotal roles probably in the history of the Ryder Cup, which is which says a lot. Um, I think, I think just on Seve, it's just worth mentioning. So, when we talk about leadership, I think Seve is a great example of someone who is a leader he 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 gave direction to the european team he was their sort of spiritual leader in many ways he was not by all accounts a very good captain so there's a difference there and it's probably the leadership and management difference in that when you when seven even alapabal who is his best friend and adores um adores the man you know was saying you know he was he was laughing he he will laugh when talking about seven's captaincy in 97 he wasn't a great captain or manager but he was a genuine leader and that's what i mean by that we we overdo leadership we've we've sort of substituted the word leadership into and what we're really talking about is sort of management and bureaucracy half the time yeah so there's a, there's a there's a clear difference in your mind between being a captain and, and being a leader uh which often gets blurred um during the days of the Ryder cup in a brief way how much is golf and sports media to blame for this yeah, I mean, I think it's it's whether it's to blame. It's 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 dramatizing it, and therefore, as part of the drama, we want the stories. We need characters, and uh, I mean, I'm a journalist myself, but it's it's one of those that they probably are, but it's it's enjoyable, you know. And in the Ryder Cup, no one gets hurt. It's just like a it's no great um, problem. It's when it then get when you see it the same trends in in business and politics. Uh, we're doing the same thing. The reporting is the same, and there you do have problems and real, te- you know, because people can actually make um, some big decisions which affect people's lives in a, in a fundamental way. So the same process, I guess, that sport is brilliant at, at narrative, is brilliant at, at sort of taking relatively obscure and, and probably boring um, subject matter and elevating it and making it interesting. And leadership is one of those areas. I would say that. There was something that happened, I think, probably in the 80s in terms of the, the way in which sport and business started to be reported. Um, and we started to, it, things started to get more complicated and we wanted simple answers. And, and uh, you know, as, as the teams have come together, they're much closer. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to tell who is an American player and who is a European player um, if you don't know, you know, your, your golf. So... They're a bit like cars and a bit like mobile phones. They're all the same, and we're resorting to storytelling to tell the difference. And, and the captain is the key storytelling device. I like that a lot. Uh, just a couple more quick, quick questions here. Uh, myself, personally, as an American and a relatively young one, 
I've pretty much only known the Ryder Cup to be European success. <laughs> I, I, I didn't really follow the Ryder Cup in the 90s. I was too young. Uh, one of my favorite parts in the book is just how much history is in it. You talk about Brookline a ton, uh, the War on the Shore, Kiwa, obviously Medina quite a bit. What part was the most fun for you to piece together? Um, that's a good question, and it's not what I was expecting. I really enjoyed the stories around Walter Hagen, going right back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, and because he's just such a larger-than-life figure, he's a sort of Gatsby-type figure. And when I then, you know, when you did some of the research into him, I knew, I sort of thought I knew the story and didn't really know it as well as I thought I did. So that, that bit I really loved. Um, I also really like, I mean, one of the themes that comes through is, is the Palmer and Nicholas sort of relationship. And again, how that evolved and what they, I, I find Nick, Nicholas's role in the Ryder Cup really interesting and particularly around 1969 and the, and the um, concession uh, mm. story, which again has been elevated. That's a story that, that is central to the Ryder Cup's position in this sort of sports marketplace, if you like. So the, the, the concession is, has, has, is a story that's been told over and over and over again um, and over the years is now come to represent that sportsmanship, you know, it's, it's come to represent the, is emblematic of what the Ryder Cup should be and could be. Actually, when you dig into the concession, as ever, it's bit much more fun and much more nuanced and there is more going on than a simple gesture of, of you know, good faith by, by Nicholas. Because yeah. I think there's, there's you know, and, and I think that's what I really like about that is it really is quite a nicely counterintuitive story. So I, if I was to pick a moment, I think the 69 um, chapter, I think I, I thought was really good. So then in summation of everything you've researched and everything we've discussed, if I made you say yes or no to the question of do Ryder Cup captains matter? And if the answer is yes, where do they matter most? What would you say? <laughs> um, I've got to say no. I, don't, I, I mean, I think that they matter in the story of the event and they matter commercially and they matter from a uh, keeping the Ryder Cup profile throughout the year beyond the three days of the event. Do they matter in terms of, of the performance impact on their team? I don't think they do. Um, and so that, that would be sort of my, my answer to that. And I, I think that some people, you know, I, I've, I haven't re written the book. It's not a negative book. It's not saying that it, the, the, the captains are, um, it's their fault. It's our fault. You know, mm -hmm. we're, it's a, it's a, this says far more about us than it does about them. And, and it's, it's how we watch sport and how we respond and the stories that we tell, um, I say, tell it, they're about us. That we're projecting onto these two people. Well, we can leave it at that. Thank you, Richard, for joining me and debunking myths about the Ryder Cup captaincy. As a reminder, his book is called The Captain Myth, How the Ryder Cup is Won. really breaks down everything you need to know about Ryder Cup history, where captains have failed, where captains have succeeded, more so where teams have failed and where teams have succeeded. And as I said earlier, the book was released on September 6th here in the United States. You can find it basically anywhere, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere you find books normally. His book will be there. The Captain Myth, 
how the Ryder Cup is won. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.